You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, it's just us talking now. Let's be honest with each other. Lying about ourselves is something we've all done from time to time to gain an advantage in life. That fake ID you got in the local nightclub as a wide-eyed teen. That online dating or Facebook profile picture which sells the story of a younger you. Or the resume that inflates the career experience needed just a little bit for that once-in-a-lifetime job. Perhaps you've even massaged the numbers on a mortgage application to make it seem like you're better off than you really are. We tell ourselves, nobody gets hurt, and besides, everybody else does it. And this is where most of us stop, before somebody does get hurt. But sometimes, well, sometimes those harmless little white lies turn into something far more sinister. There exists a murkier, shadowy world, a world where people use complex strategies and cutting-edge technology to hide who they really are to defraud multinational companies out of millions of dollars. This is happening more and more every day. But there are men and women whose job it is to see through these lies in the shadowy world of online espionage and counter-espionage. Men and women who specialize in seeking out the truth about people, exploring their past and their present to understand their likely future before anybody signs on the dotted line. This week, we welcome back Dee Smith, CEO and Principal of Strategic Insight Group. He's the man many of the world's largest corporations call upon to make sure they know exactly who they're dealing with. I'm Grant Williams, or maybe I'm someone impersonating Grant Williams. Either way, this week on Adventures in Finance, Corporate Intelligence. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our usual long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not so good stories of the week. I am, well, cautiously long. The Chinese Bond Connect scheme, which connects uh, Hong Kong and mainland China and allows foreign investors to invest in the $9 trillion Chinese bond market. My, look, my, uh, my short is a bit simpler. Uh, it's a bit simpler. I'm short of Aussie dollars. Not the currency per se, but physical Aussie dollars. In a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience. Yeah, this week, we're very fortunate to have one of the nicest guys in financial markets, Peter Brandt. Uh, he's a classical chartist, and he explains what he got wrong having presuppositions about the markets early on in his career. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chen, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is July 6, 2017, and welcome to episode 23 of Adventures in Finance. Now, before we dive right in, I just want to wish our American listeners a happy belated 4th of July. Yes, uh, indeed. And, and that goes for me too. No bitterness here whatsoever from this English the, the, the listeners can't see it, but there's a bit of a twisted look on your face. No, Grant. no, that's, that's just sitting next to James. I'm, I'm like that every week. <laughs> oh, man, there's no week. He doesn't spare you any, any week, James. That's right. I'm too tired to even pay attention to him now. Are you really? Yeah, so that giant burger you had. Baby's been keeping me up at night. How's that going, by the way? Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone says, oh, 
but they're not going to sleep. They're going to keep you up. You're going to be tired. And you think, nah. Is there anything that, that's happened that you didn't expect? Um, explosive poop. All right. All everywhere. right. I, I, you know what? You showed me a picture of that earlier this week. We don't okay, need to Okay, let's move up. on. Let's move on. <laughs> yes, Grant. Let's move on to our first segment called Long Short, where Grant and I look at the good and not so good stories of the week. And Grant, do you want me to start with this one? or? Yeah. I- let me start. Let, yeah, me, you let start? me start. Why don't you start? Let me start with my short for the week. And I just had lunch and I'm not hungry. But I'm also not hungry because of my short for the week, which is Blue Apron. So I'm short Blue Apron. For those of you who don't know what Blue Apron is, uh, it's a company that essentially sends a box full of ingredients uh, for preset meals to right, right to your door with instructions on how to prepare them. Uh, but unfortunately, the prep work is done by the person who ordered it. So it's basically the service where they deliver groceries to you. And you just have to chop it up and cook it according to their instructions. Now, I'm short Blue Apron because they recently had an IPO. And they IPO'd at $10 per share. But that was after they had cut down the share price from, I think, around $15 or $17 mm-hmm. down to $10. And as you'd expect, that you know, a company like this that in the first quarter of 2017 had a net loss that was as great as all of 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock traded down, I think, to $8.88 and then before rallying a little bit. But if you look at the financials and you dig in a little deeper, it's pretty concerning some of the things you you know, you know read. Uh, Blue Apron's customers placed just an average of 4.1 orders in the first quarter, and that's down from 4.8 in the first quarter of 2016. Um, so that's one a month, basically. Yes. Give or take. Yeah, give or take. Yeah. Virtually one a month. Yeah, and, and, and that number is not going up. Uh, and then there's this research firm, 1010 Data, that found that uh, just 50% of Blue Apron's customers place a second order the week after they place the first order. And to make matters worse, their their turnover is pretty high. So their customers aren't staying. They uh, This research firm found that customer retention rates dropped to 20% after 11 months and have um, over 24 months. So those aren't the kind of retention numbers that you want to see in in a company that is spending a gargantuan amount of cash in marketing uh, efforts and in acquiring uh, customers. So, yeah, but you, but you know what? This stock is actually really useful in one way, in that this is classic, classic top behavior. Late. These companies yeah. are exactly the kind of companies. This is Pets.com. This is you know these are the companies that do this kind of thing and go public to a lot of fanfare right when the fumes are running out. So yeah. I, I saw this too and. To me, it was just a really useful fact to file away thinking, okay, fine, you know, we're close. We are close now. You know, I, I had the similar thought. And another thought that passed my mind, I guess it's a, it's a little sad because essentially what's happened since 2008 is that we've had tons of companies like Instacart, you know, had companies like Uber, and then a company like, like Blue Apron where essentially humans are reduced to transportation devices. Like we haven't solved you know, um, autonomous drivers uh, are driving yet. So we're just using humans and we're hu- using lab- uh, human capital to try and like essentially be delivery um, as, as transportation. So I don't know, just... But, yeah, but it's also, you know, it's giving people an income. And you can argue, I guess. You can argue the other thing it, both yeah. ways. Um, but it's, uh, you know, when you get IPOs like this that, that are clearly ridiculous ideas with bad businesses uh, going public to a lot of fanfare, um, getting trolled around by Wall Street brokerage houses to, to their customers trying to get them to buy the IPO, it's, uh, it's a definite sign. My, look, my, uh, my short is a bit simpler. Uh, it's a bit simpler. I'm short of Aussie dollars. Not the currency per se, but physical Aussie dollars. There's a, a fantastic story this week which was sent to me by a listener who said this would be a great one for the, for the long short, and he wasn't wrong. Um, they are talking uh, about adding RFID chips. This is uh, Michael Andrew, the head 
of the federal government's Black Economy Task Force. Ah, the damn black economy. Yeah, exactly right. Now, his contention is that too much cash is being hoarded under pensioners' beds and stockpiled as as a trusted currency in China. And estimates range between 23 and $50 billion uh, has been put away like this. And obviously the usual, the usual suspects, drug dealers, blah, 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 blah. You know, anytime there's money Pensioners involved. love their drugs. Yeah, exactly right. right? I mean, except I don't think sinatogen counts as a class A drug. I'm not, I'm not too <laughs> sure. But um, anyway, apparently there should be 14 $100 notes uh, for every adult in Australia, but there are a lot fewer than that in the circulation. It doesn't actually say how many. Um, now, they'd say that criminals prefer the $50 note, um, but uh, foreign migrants and pensioners prefer $100. And they talk about a lot of Chinese that don't trust their banking system, so they are going to actually take Australian dollars back to China and, and stockpile them, which is, okay, it's one way to do it. Um, but these guys are talking about working with the Reserve Bank to get a better understanding of where the notes are. Um, and his quote is this, clearly there's a section of this that is organised crime. One of the options we would have is putting an expiry date on these notes. You would put a trace on some of the notes to see where they would go. You can use nanotechnology to put little chips in so you could again trace it. Now, that's unreal. You know, look, we, we, we talk about the thin end of the wedge. We're seeing more and more of this stuff happen. But uh, the idea that they're going to physically trace the notes that you have to make, you know, so they can actually say, right, we know exactly where in your house you've hit, put your $100 bill uh, or put expiry dates on it is just ludicrous to me. So, this is again uh, another step down a road that. We've been traveling for a while slowly, but it seems like the pace is picking up, unfortunately. Yeah, somewhere I think uh, George Orwell is doing 1080s in his grave. Yeah, no kidding. Unreal. Well, Grant, I'm going to move on to my long for the week. And I am, well, cautiously long the internationalization of the RMB. And I think this is a bit of a, a constant theme I for believe, me. I believe I've been long enough myself for <laughs> some period in the uh, previous 22 weeks. Yeah, exactly. But I am long the Chinese Bond Connect scheme, which connects. Uh, Hong Kong and mainland China, and allows foreign investors to invest in the $9 trillion uh, Chinese bond market. Now, before you get up in arms, like, oh, this is a great idea, I'm cautiously optimistic and I'm cautiously long uh, because the flows only go one way. Mm-hmm. So if you invest, you can invest one way and you can, you, can, you can put money and put funds into the Chinese bond market, but you can't take it out. So I'm kind of cautiously long because I think you know, when you think about the uh, foreign ownership of, of Chinese domestic bonds, it's at 1.4%. Now, to give you some perspective, uh, about 5% of Korean bonds are owned by foreign owners. Uh, and in Japan, it's even higher. I think it's closer to like 50%. So, you know, if you imagine if MSCI or one of these indexers um, add Chinese bonds to their indices, what could happen in terms of inflows into Chinese bonds, I think it'd be huge. But we're probably, you know, that's probably over the medium and longer term. Uh, so for this week, I am long RMB internationalization. Well, you know, I, th- I, I understand the reasoning behind it. I think getting long of anything that you can't actually get your money out of is never the most sensible idea. You know, it's, it's, all about, it's all about time frames, I guess. Uh, and, you know, look, what the Chinese have done in getting into the SDR with a, with a pegged currency, which uh, was quite remarkable, um, and moves like this without, you know, they still aren't opening up their capital account, but they're getting inflows. It's, it's a very interesting process. And I think there's a lot of people betting that this internationalization is going to, is going to pick up steam. And they may be right. You know, I think it's happening. Um, the problem is if we get any kind of stress in the markets, it's, you know, they, it could be happening the next day. They'll just stop it like that. So it's a, it's a risky one, I think. Um, I understand the reason behind it. I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't short it, but I'm not sure I'm ready to jump on the bandwagon and go long with this time. Well, fair enough. What I am willing to go long off, as it's uh, 4th of July weekend, it's the summer. 
Two words, baby driver. That's what I'm long of. Finally, a movie that doesn't involve a superhero or multiple superheroes that has a great script, superb music. Get out and see Baby Driver. It is an absolute riot. Fantastic movie. Oh, it's a movie? Yeah. Oh, come on. Dear God. What the hell's wrong with you? I'm sure listeners know at this point that it's uh it, look, it's got Kevin Spacey in it, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, uh, Lily James is in What's it. What's it about? Without giving away too much, what is it about? It's about a young man who's a getaway driver. But the music is it's just, you know, it's it's a very original film. It's brilliantly written, it's brilliantly acted, the music is sensational. Uh, and it's yeah, it's kind of a disposable action movie, but it was superb. And I'm so sick of superheroes. Honestly, if I if I see yeah, another person summer. wearing a lycra suit, <laughs> including you, James, I'm just I'm just I'm just done with them. And this was just a real treat. So there's my long baby driver. You heard it here first. The neon pink looks good on James, though. I will say that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to our commentary feature for the week, and we'll be continuing with our geopolitics theme, um, and we'll hear from D. Smith, who is the CEO and principal of the Strategic Insight Group, a consultancy specializing in private intelligence, and in this commentary. Um, Grant, you and Raul reflect upon the inside view that D provides on an opaque industry, but is really important and plays an important role for investors. Yeah, D's the real deal. I mean, he's a he's a longtime political analyst, has great connections. He's got uh, a super sharp brain, um, and he looks at things. You know, when you when you sit and talk with someone like D, you realize that there are people that just look at things differently, and uh, you know, you can do that in the Steve Jobs way, but. In the world that uh, that D moves in, you have to have that ability to look at things from a different perspective and open open uh, your mind to possibilities that uh, most of us living in the real world quite happily, uh, before you take the blue or the red pill, uh, don't even think about. It. So yeah, it was a fascinating conversation. I've been lucky to get invited to the Club B conference, and you've been as well, Grant. Club B is kind of this very exclusive group of family offices that get together and invite some of the smartest speakers in the world to come and talk about things. And, you know, apart from people like me fraudulently getting in and doing a speech, there's actually some interesting people there. And I went to Hong Kong to film the Club B for Real Vision, and I met a guy who was a very soft-spoken, lovely... Texan called D Smith and D has a investigations business essentially like Kroll kind of corporate investigations and speaking to D I realized that that was just the tip of the iceberg it was an astonishing interview I walked away later and said wow that guy's amazing and we've actually building an entire series around his knowledge and connections and what he does he's an astonishing guy There are several kinds of briefs that we might get. The most typical one would be we're thinking of investing in this fund uh, or we're looking at investing in this this entity, this company, uh, which would be in the case of a a direct investor, a private equity or venture capital director uh, uh, investor. And the the brief would be we want to look at the people and we want to know whether they are who they say they are, whether they have, you know, negativities that we don't know about in their past that we might uh, be concerned about, we certainly should know about. Um, the, the brief might on extend on to the entities. They might want to look at the at the various entities that are involved in the transaction, in, in entities in which they might invest in related entities to see, again, if there are any, any things that they 
might not know about that they would want to know about before they make a decision. Um, it could extend into uh, looking at markets to verify and corroborate what a, uh, let's say, an operating uh, entity, a direct investment, claims about a market or claims about a market they're thinking of expanding into. And it could go on up to geopolitical and geostrategic information that uh, relates to the markets that a company is in, but also to the very specific elements of who they've been dealing with in various governments and in various in-country uh, situations to know whether those are people that the investor wants to be associated with or not. So it, it's very broad ranging. We call it vertical intelligence because it, it goes from the, the, the micro, the people, all the way up to the, the, the macro and the geopolitical and everything in between, but presented as an integrative approach that, that lets you really understand how these things work, how they interact, and what the complexion of the whole thing looks like. Well, that sounds like a pitch for a film, right? Yeah. It's just amazing. It's like a John Grisham novel right there. I mean, anything you could do with that is incredible. I mean, it's... Well, this is, this is the thing. People, people kind of forget about this stuff. There's this whole idea of due diligence. When you're, when you're trying to commit millions of dollars, um, and, and we do live in a world where people like to look for the easy solution. They like the shortcut. They don't like to really, you know, we've talked about this so much. They don't really want to do the work. They want to buy the ETF and not research the companies, right? But when you get these guys that, that uh, D deals with, they're committing millions of dollars to deals. And there are a lot of ways that you can blow through millions of dollars simply by not doing your homework. And, it, and it's becoming ever more crucial um, for people to really understand not only the projects that they're investing in, but the people they're dealing with too. And especially as businesses get more global, it's virtually impossible to check somebody out yourself by right. a couple of contacts. It's fine if you're trying to check somebody out in the US, um, but it becomes more complicated you know there's frauds everywhere you know we're just seeing one unveiling right now in canada yeah um and it's difficult to know where the fraud lies or where the banana skins lay yeah and uh, somehow you need to find that and, and that's what d does well yeah until, until you're laying flat on your back looking up at the ceiling thinking you know what the hell happened multi-million dollars poorer <laughs> exactly right an, an example would be a, a project where um we were asked by a long-term client in, based in new york city this was a domestic U.S. project in this case, we were asked to uh, look at a company that was in the um, healthcare supply chain business. Um, it was a very uh, well-run company, expanding uh, well, and they were going to provide some mezzanine financing. Uh, and um, we were asked to check out the top people, key people in the, in the um, uh, company and the entities themselves. It all checked out fine, except there was an anomaly um, that we found with the CEO and, and uh, founder and principal shareholder. The anomaly was that there were three Maseratis registered to his name in Miami. And there was nothing else that connected him to that part of the country. It was all the Midwest. You know, it was Nebraska and, and Kansas and that part of the world. And so, you know, some people would say, well, that's just a mistake in the data array. The important thing is not to look at it that way. It, when you see an anomaly, it's telling you something, so you need to pay attention to it. And so we did, and we, we thought, well, that's odd. They're in his name. What's this address they're registered to? It turned out to be a condo worth about $2 million in South Beach. And so we'll, we you know, asked the next question, well, who owns the condo? Well, it was owned by a company, a corporation. That's kind of odd, but who owns the corporation? 
is owned by another corporation. Not against to get into a shell company type thing, you know. So who owns that corporation? Owned by yet another corporation. Who owns that? The fellow, the subject owned that. So not only was he, you know, creating a structure that uh, that was designed to hide his ownership, but as it turned out, to make a long story short, none of his employees knew that he had this. None of his family members knew that he had this condo and the three Maseratis, he would take business trips and he would, uh, you know, um, do real business for two or three days. And then he'd have two or three days where he did whatever he did in South Beach with the three Maseratis. You know, uh, as I was watching this, I was sitting there thinking, what do you do with three That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) I get the one or maybe a Maserati and a Ferrari. But three Maseratis? It's bizarre, right? It, I think there's more of a story there. Yeah, you're probably right. But yeah, this, this was fascinating to me because it just shows you um, that no matter what lengths you go to to try and hide this stuff, again, you get professionals who know what they're doing on the other side of the trade to you and you are at a disadvantage, period. You know, you, 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 if you're punching out of your weight class, it's just a matter of time. And we see that right through the financial markets. And thank God for people like D. Smith, yeah. right? Because you need somebody to be the policeman. Because if not, you know, financial markets and business in general is so obscure and complex that, you know, the chance of losing money by the individual are high. And you need the policeman to make sure that everything's right. You do. And it's, you know, it's funny, when, when you get into things like short selling... It's funny how the short sellers who generally are doing that because they feel like the stock's going to go lower are the bad guys. You know, when there's a, when there's any kind of market disruption, they ban short selling. You know, these guys uh, they, they take a big leap of faith, and their downside is unlimited essentially. So normally these guys are a lot more diligent than the guys who are buying it because they just figure, well, I'll buy it if I go up. And, you know, I've got my my downside is limited to my cost. Um, but you know, to your point, this this stuff it's it's hard, it's complicated, and you really do need to make sure you know what you're doing. The biggest pitfall that investors make is to um, get very involved with a project and fall in love with it, and and make friends with the principals, and you know, essentially get to a point where they're they're very heavily invested emotionally and and intellectually in the project before they've invested financially and then come to us and have a background check and then it shows something or some other kind of intelligence it shows something that's negative and then they have a very difficult time coming to terms with that information and they'll say well that can't be right are you sure let's check it again okay it comes back the same are you sure let's check and you know it it becomes a, a a very difficult emotional decision uh, and I've had cases where people went ahead and, and you know, it's obviously the investor's choice. We just provide information. And, um, and they went ahead and, 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 and took actions against what we would advise. And, um, and I've had cases in which things have blown up. You know, other things that, that investors um, uh, do that are, that are problematic uh, is that they, they set goals that they feel like they have to reach and they start making decisions, uh, you know, to, to deploy capital, let's say, and they start making decisions quickly when they're up to a, 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 a time limit when they should have, they should either get the time limit extended or they should have, you know, been 
more proactive in the front and you, you get yourself into a corner. And that's always bad decision making. It can turn out okay if you're lucky, but it's always bad decision making to, to make decisions under duress in, from a time standpoint like that. And unfortunately, there's so much money chasing deals now that that's beginning to happen even when there's not you know, some kind of formal deadline. It's just that you know, something comes up and people will find that they you know, have a very short window and they want us to do projects very quickly, which we can do. Although, you know, as, as the um, former director of the, of the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, um, once told me, and I think, thought it was beautifully stated, is that intelligence is like a table with three legs, and the, the legs are money, time, and outcome. And if you stress any of them, it affects the other. So if you, if you have to have something done in, you know, three days, as opposed to the three weeks it should take, then it's going to cost a lot more, and you're going to um, have less... Uh, effective outcomes because you've short-circuited the process. I think one of the key features of bull markets is as they go on longer and longer, there tends to be more and more fraud. And it's because exactly what he's talking about is things get frantic in a bull market. People frantically need to do the deal because somebody else is going to take it yep. away from them. So people just don't do their due diligence, which is why a feature of bear markets is frauds getting exposed. Getting exposed exactly. And they're generally frauds that, that perpetuated really in the bull market and nobody had time to due diligence. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, yeah, the other thing that, that he was talking about there that really struck home with me was this idea that you know people fall in love with ideas and stocks and people. And, it, and that's... To me, one You'll of the key. You think of Elon Musk again, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, you mentioned it though. But you know, this this is something that this this willful blindness that, that people have that they get into a stock uh, and they do fall in love with it, and and they almost the worst thing that can happen is it goes really well really quickly because then you know you're in that love forever, and as soon as things start going wrong, you just refuse to believe that you just, you just will not accept that this thing could be going against you, and that that. An inability to step back and be dispassionate about investments and people that you're going to business with has hurt more people, I would think, than in almost any other facet of this business. So what was amazing about this interview is suddenly D shifted gears. He goes, oh, Ral, I want to talk to you about some other stuff. And so I sat down and said, sure, D. And suddenly he opened up really what he thinks about the world, and I was completely yeah. blown away. I mean, I, I sat there and talked to him for about an hour after the interview. I was just like... Oh my God, this is so interesting. Yeah. So let's hear Dee's sudden shift now into his other thoughts about the world. I've watched, you know, over the course of my adult life, the world go from a, uh, a bipolar, you know, relatively stable situation with the US and the Soviet Union to now a multipolar uh, and highly unstable situation. And I have heard senior people say off the record, both in military and diplomatic uh, circles, uh, that this is the most risk, high risk and unpredictable environment in their working lives. And these are people, you know, in their late 50s, early 60s. So they've got a long span of work. And I think that's correct. And I think there are several reasons why that's happened. Um, but one of the most important drivers is the hyperconnectivity revolution. You know, it's the, it's the um, the world of, of social media and the internet, texting, and all those things that have, have dramatically changed 
the, uh, the entire environment in which we live. Just to give you an example, if you look at the number of cell phones in the world now, uh, it's estimated that it's about 4.8 billion cell phones. There are more cell phones than there are toothbrushes, by the way. Yeah. And um, uh, each of those phones, at least in theory, can call or text any of the other ones. So that's 23 trillion connections that didn't exist 30 years ago. And that's just phones. And so, you know, you have created a, a, um, a global uh, matrix that, that really has no precedent in human, uh, in human civilization. And that's doing several things, but of particular importance to international, to global change. It is um, allowing the creation of, of, of affinity groups, which actually are tribal. And it, you know, the, the, my, I have, a, as I mentioned, a background in, in uh, archaeology and anthropology. And I think we have uh, forgotten how important tribes and tribalism is as, a, as an innate structure within human society. And so you multiply that times every kind of interest from, you know, enophiles and butterfly collectors to religious extremists and, and political extremists. And, you know, you've suddenly created this ability for a horizontal organization of society across borders uh, and across jurisdictions that never existed before. I think this was, when he said this, it kind of blew me away. Because if you visualise what he's talking about is before it'd be clusters of people, your tribalism was like your football club or a group of people who were around you, your union or whatever it may be. And then suddenly he's talking about the tribes are horizontal. You know, you can have a conversation as a dog lover with other affiliated people who, who like your particular breed of dog that you've got in any country in the world, in fact, almost every country in the world. And so that can be done for positive things, but also hugely negative things. Yeah. I mean, the spread of stuff like ISIS is based on this horizontal tribalism yeah. because it's everywhere and nowhere. And that incredible fact of about the, I think, 23 trillion connections yeah. and there's more cell phones than toothbrushes makes you understand how complex this web has suddenly got really quickly. Yeah, it's really started that off talking about you know, what a much more peaceful world it was when we had the stability of the US and Russia facing off with each other all the time. You know, it, it, it kind of sounds ridiculous to think of it that way now, but it's so true. But this also breaks down borders, right? Borders yeah. have me no meaning. So military has no ability to control a situation because people are everywhere and nowhere. It's like the ultimate guerrilla warfare, if we're talking about warfare. It's really, really complex. Well, and it's, you know, these, these ties are only deepening. These, these relationships that people form just become deeper because they immerse themselves in those groups and they kind of shut out the rest of the world. And, you know, the, those dog lovers, they just get in there with the, the, the other dog lovers and they just shut everybody out. And as we know, as we talked about on the podcast before, is echo chambers yeah. develop very quickly because those people only want to hear about what they want to hear about and they won't hear about anything else. And so what it does is become self-reinforcing as well. So among, that tribalism becomes stronger and stronger because they don't hear any outside voices. Well, we spoke about this you know, around the US elections. This is exactly what happened in the US elections, you know, with the way that the news feeds went in and made sure that they reinforced your beliefs, whether you're a Trump supporter, Hillary supporter, and so you just kind of just stayed in that little world. Yeah, and if you remember, um, Trump's strategy or his team strategy was about picking up all the individual tribes by telling them separate messages. Yeah. Um, to bring those tribes on board to create a super tribe. 
bloody clever stuff. And it worked like a charm. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, let's see what Steve has to say. You know, if you look at at at, um, at what we know in terms of anthropology, there are a few characteristics of of, of um, uh, native peoples or, or traditional peoples. I, I don't like the word primitive, but you know, pre pre complex society peoples. And and one of them is that when and, and I'm speaking generally, but these are broadly you know true, and, and, and an anthropologist will tell you this that that when people from a traditional tribe encounter someone they don't know, that person is assumed to be an enemy unless he's known not to be. And there'll often be this long discussion right at the beginning to see if they can find any link so they can avoid having to have a violent confrontation. So, you know, that's innate. That's in us. And, you know, the species is probably 200,000 years old. Civilization is probably 10,000 years old. So, of our existence has been mediated and moderated by this complex society force and the rest of it, that genetic heritage, if you will, you know, the human nature characteristics are are down in there. So that's one of them. Uh, Another thing is those people seldom met people from other, you know, cultures that at least very different cultures. Um, And, you know, they, they became very, very, micro identity uh, focused so that you know a village that would look to you or me like it was identical to another village 7 miles away they actually see as entirely different and they have periodic warfare with them and by the way that's another factor is that warfare is so common in in many traditional societies in in, in the plurality of traditional societies that it's ubiquitous it's always going on low low scale low level warfare now those are all things that don't augur well for, you know, the kind of world we built. And there are things we don't want to believe about ourselves. But I'm just saying, you know, you've got to at some point face reality and 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 look at well, what, what are we like and how do we then create a way to live with, with the world that we've got instead of simply just putting our head in the sand and denying uh, these things and wondering why they're happening. So I think that was very interesting, and it's it's something that I have come to believe over time is that we are extremely tribal as a species. As a species, we're warmongers because of our tribalism. And we just, it's time and time and time again. We don't stop having war. And essentially, if you listen to what Dee's saying, when we break down society into even more tribal groups than currently exist, well, then the propensity for war or battles or fights between those groups increases exponentially. And the more connections you have, the more tribes you have, the more battles you have. Well, and yet, you know, if you flip this around, you've got the other side of the coin where this interconnectivity, this ability to share information is causing problems in places like North Korea. We're seeing this now. You know, information is leaking into countries that previously were able to block it out. Um, and you know, there's, there's all kinds of talk about the, 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 the pressures that Kim Jong-un is under, the reasons he's playing up are because his military are getting a little bit more information from the outside and they want him to posture and they want to do this stuff and he's worried about you know a possible coup so this transmission of of information while it's a great thing in in many many ways sometimes the fact that it is so free to get it out there it allows misinformation to be planted it allows all these things to your point to create this tribalism to create these conflicts simply with the use of well-placed let's call it fake news you know you put these things out there and people believe them very very quickly now I think part of the thing Dee's missing here, because it comes across as 
quite sinister, is actually there can be forces for change too. You know, you can mobilise vast groups of people around the world to certain causes that can be good. You know, things can change because you can, you can, it's much easier to connect with people. So I think there's a downside, which is, you know, tribal people tend to battle more, but the ability to gather support across the globe in a certain cause, whatever it may be, um, even for your Cheerio burger chain that we talked about before, you know, that crowdfunding, right, is an example of that. You know, there is positive force out of this too, but there's a lot of negative downsides. And, and yeah, it's not a world that we know how to deal with, but we're going to have to. You know, Grant, anytime I listen to D. Smith, and he's so eloquent, he has this way of speaking, uh, I almost come away feeling like a little scared because it's like there's all these things that you don't think about, and it's like there's, there's basically nothing that you can do about it, but they're real, they're tangible, and I don't know, it's just there's like an uneasy feeling that I get just, just hearing. Yeah, there's something about hearing about you know, the, 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 the things that have the potential to end the world from a, from, you know, a nice, softly spoken, homely Texas accent <laughs> that, that, that really kind of hits at home. So, yeah, look, these, these, uh, as I said, he's a real deal, a fascinating guy. And, it, you know, it's, it's a world that we talk a lot about on Real Vision and we try and dig into as much as we can. And, and, and the more you dig into it, the more you realise, A, how important it is, but B, how little about it we really, really know. And it's also this concept of like, you know, horizontal or vertical research, uh, the, the private intelligence aspect of, of really doing deep dive like diligence uh, is, is, is quite incredible. And it, I, I mean, look, I've done due diligence for, for mergers and acquisitions when I used to work in an investment bank, but there's nothing like what he describes. I mean, these guys go, <laughs> they go deep. Well, well, there isn't. But, you know, the, the thing that was striking to me in this conversation was sometimes you don't need to go that deep. You know, and and it just shows you that that people are very lax about this kind of thing. If you're in, you're investigating people, you're in business with, for example, some of the examples uh, D gave us, you don't have to do too much digging to to uncover some pretty bad things about people. Um, but but guys just don't do that. They kind of take people at face value, and it, and it's a dangerous thing to do in this day and age when the information is out there for you to to go find it. And uh, it's never been more important than the world we live in today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, Grant, let's move on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience. So hopefully our listeners don't make the same mistakes. And this week we had the great opportunity to speak with Peter Brandt, who's a CEO and founder of Factor Research. And we spoke about a time he got something wrong early on in his 40-year career and discussed how retail investors or investors of any levels can apply some practical steps in terms of objectively assessing their trading. All right, joining me this week is Peter Brandt, who's the founder and CEO of Factor Trading Company and the Factor Service. Peter, before we begin, I want to congratulate you on an astounding, fantastic series that was just published on Real Vision TV and will be made available exclusively to Factor Service members uh, later on. But, you know, it, just off the top, Peter, it was a great honor to work with you. Uh, Arizona is a beautiful place. Um, Mona was so gracious. And Grace, <laughs> your dog, she was a, a great host as well. So, uh, Peter, I'm uh, really happy to be speaking with you again. Well, thanks, Aaron. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience for me to do that five-part series with Real Vision. I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do something like that with uh, with better people. So it was my, it was really my privilege and uh, pleasure to be able to have done that. Well, pleasure was all ours. Um, you know, Peter, you have such an interesting uh, background, uh, beginning with your days in advertising, then ultimately setting up your shop in Chicago. So, uh, for our listeners who don't know you, can you run them through your backstory? 
Oh, not at all. I I, uh, I moved to Chicago right out of college in the advertising business and met somebody that uh, uh, that was a trader at the Chicago Board of Trade, and uh, he introduced me to the, the whole idea of futures markets. And uh, I would, went on the Board of Trade, had lunch with them, became absolutely uh, hooked on the idea of becoming a trader. And this was uh, back in 1974, when really the modern era of futures markets uh, uh, was only a year or two old. And so I went on to the Board of Trade in 1974, worked for a major uh, grain company, an exporting uh, commodity exporter, kind of learned the ropes, uh, had a couple of really nice institutional accounts as I learned the business. But even then, my goal was to be an independent trader and in 1980. Uh, I learned enough uh, that I launched a proprietary trading firm at the Chicago Board of Trade. That was uh, Factor Research and Trading, and, uh, and and so I've earned my living uh, over the years uh, as a trader. I uh, don't handle customer accounts, just trade for myself, and have done that uh, since 1980. It's been it's been a wild ride, and it's been a been a wonderful career to have been involved with. Yeah, it's incredible, and 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 for for our Real Vision TV subscribers who haven't, um, I think there's a longer version of your backstory in in the first episode with you, between you and Raul. I, I highly encourage our our listeners uh, and the subscribers to check that out because uh, there's there's a lot more detail and, and some really nice pictures that go along with with the backstory. So uh, I'd just like to highlight that. But um, you know, Peter, in keeping with the name and. Uh, the theme of this segment. Can you tell us about a time you made an investing mistake and please share a piece of timeless wisdom you got from that experience? Well, you know, I've made so many investment mistakes. Uh, if I was to talk about individual trades, I think that would that would probably take up the rest of the year and uh, all future uh, <laughs> Real Vision podcasts. I, I mean, you know, I make mistakes all the time. So rather than focus on an individual trade, and there have been plenty of them, I, I'd rather just kind of go maybe a little different route with, uh, with your question, Aaron, and, and talk about maybe what I got wrong when I joined uh, the, this crazy business, 1974 and 1975. What were some major uh, presuppositions that I was wrong on? What did I have wrong from the very front end? And I, and I think, uh, what did I have wrong that many traders who might start off as traders today have the same things wrong? And so I, I'd really like to maybe go that direction if it's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. I, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that I got wrong in 1974-75, which is something that would be very easy to get wrong today, and, and that is the idea that in order to be profitable, net profitable as, as a market speculator, you have to be right on your market calls that uh, perhaps worded a different way that win rate, win rate is kind of something a lot of people focus on in, in these markets today, is that win rate is the most important metric uh, to be used uh, to determine uh, the value of a trading approach. Uh, I, I was dead wrong on that. And, and many people today are. You, you go on the blogosphere and you see a lot of people bragging about being right 70% of the time, 80% of the time. And frankly, I don't think win rate's a very good metric in terms of evaluating uh, an approach to trading. Yeah, Peter, it's so interesting you mentioned win rate. And it's just one of, you know, a lot of our listeners 
manage their own money. And given your background as an independent uh, trader or you know, becoming an independent trader, how did you first approach um, you know, performance measuring uh, and using these sorts of metrics or finding the right metrics? So how would someone who, who's trading their, their money maybe doesn't have as much experience as you do? Well, 40 years, not a lot of people do. Uh, but what words of advice would you have for people who are maybe lacking that aspect in their trading process? Well, you know, I, I think there's an emotional aspect to that that has to be handled. People don't like to be wrong. Uh, and, and I think there's a tendency that when somebody takes a loss in a trade that somehow uh, in, in their own mind that reflects badly upon their ability or capability or, 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 uh, or quality as a trader. And, you know, I've just found for myself that taking losses is part of the process of finding winners. And, you know, I've met enough really, really good traders over my life time to know that I think a common trait among career traders, I'll call them career traders, is that 80 to 90 percent of their profits have come from 10 to 20 percent of their trades. And, and you know, I think that that is a truth of just about everybody I've met and had the chance to talk to. Uh, that I know have made a career uh, of being a trader. Well, if you start with that premise that uh, that, that let's say eighty five percent of your profits come from fifteen percent of your trades, well, then you got to figure out what are you going to do with the eighty five percent of your trades that that do not contribute to your net profitability. And so what happens is your whole orientation moves from uh, from that of a preoccupation with being right to a preoccupation of minimizing losses on bad trades and allowing uh, good trades to reach their full potential. And so th- th- it flip-flops the orientation of a trader as you approach the market and Rather than being uh, of the mindset that how do I be right or how do I be right the vast majority of the time to a mindset of how do I maximize my profitability and to maximize profitability, it really becomes a function of, of, of being willing to take losses and taking a lot of losses, but also being willing to let profits when they come about. Uh, really produce the biggest possible uh, profits that they can become. I mean, it's the old saying, right? As you cut your losses short, you let your winners run. And, you know, a lot of people give uh, a lip service to that. And, of course, the, the devil's in the details. And the challenge is trying to figure out tactically how that's done. But it is a very, very different uh, way of thinking then this mindset of how do I be right the vast majority of time or the mindset that win rate is the single biggest metric in the process of profitable trading. Man, uh, Peter, I have so many other questions I want to ask you. Um, well, the first thing that, that comes to mind as you're talking about uh, cutting losses short is that uh, I think that picture of Paul Tudor Jones where behind his screen it says, you know, losers let losers run. Um, you know, so, so once you take care of that psychological or maybe even behavioral aspect, um, understanding that, you know, shifting that orientation from limiting losses, what, what comes naturally after that, at least to me, is um, the, the, the importance and emphasis on risk management becomes paramount. So for, for someone who's just starting, 
um, and you know to think about these you know this dimension of trading and of risk management. What would you say? What would you recommend in terms of just like starting to to measure correctly? Well, I mean, I mean, of course, the big practical aspect is learning to accept losses and take them stride and recognize that losses uh, are, are part of the process of finding winning trades. I, I mean, again, I come back to the fact that uh, just about every really successful trader I've ever met uh, he earns 80 to 90 percent of their profits from 10 to 20 percent of their trades and you know and again what that what that means is you got to recognize the fact that 80 percent of the trades a person puts on are, are really not going to be the kind of trades you really want to have to put in your net profitability over a long period of time so you know my observation is that uh the marketplace as a whole is obsessed with the rate of return, which is, yeah, it's a great figure. Everyone wants a rate of return, but as a metric, it's not real reliable because there's so many sub-metrics that are built into that that are actually more important. Uh, you know, the sharp ratio is probably the most worthless ratio in the world for uh, for reasons I'll just allude to in a minute. Uh, it's, it's meaningless, and of course, win rate is not a real important metric either. And so uh, there's an excellent book that was published by John Wiley and Sons, written by Jack Schwager, called Market Sense and Nonsense, where Jack goes through metrics that matter, uh, so to speak, metrics that really are, are important in, in terms of, of treating trading as a career. And you know, some of those would include gain-to-pain ratio, Kelmar ratio, uh, profit factor; those are those are more important things. So, but there's the practical aspect that that really to uh, to exceed as a trader over a long period of time, you, you can't let the fact that you have a losing trade affect you negatively. Uh, it's easier said than done, but y you know you you lose trading, and and it's not a function of not being intelligent or not being capable as a trading. It's just uh, losing is part of the territory. So I, I think that's uh, that's a key factor is focusing on on, uh, on on letting winners run and cutting losses short. I mean, it's the old age-old adage of you cut your losses short, let your winners run. And um, from, uh, of, of course, it's easier said than done. And and when you go to actually execute that, it it, it becomes a, more of a tactical problem. But but nevertheless, uh, there is so much truth to that adage that uh, profits are made. Net profitability is made in this in this business by cutting losses short, and that ends up being the majority of your trades and and letting a small portion of your trades uh, play themselves out and uh, become maximized. You know, Peter, I, I actually am um, well, incredulous that we, we've gone through this interview without even mentioning uh, classical charting or technical analysis. Uh, you know, we've been talking about risk management, but you know, unfortunately we've run out of time. But uh, for our listeners who want to learn more about your factor service or even follow you on Twitter, how can they do that? Well, on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Peter L. Brandt. Uh, and uh, the website that uh, that we have, which is a, a blog, is uh, is www.peterlbrandt.com. 
Awesome. Well, uh, Peter, again, congratulations on the Real Vision TV series. Uh, you know, it's one of those, as I, as I told you from, from the outset, it's one of those series and that people are going to come back to years down the line. Um, and it's really just reference. It's, it's great reference material if you want to become a better trader and just a better thinker uh, when, when it comes to, to technical analysis and risk management. So uh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us today. Okay. Hey, thank you, guys. You know, Grant, for the classical charting series that we did with Peter Brandt, I had the great opportunity to go out to Arizona and to, to film it with Peter and to meet Peter and meet his family. And what really strikes me about Peter is even in, his, in the latter part of his career, he still maintains this elasticity of thinking that I hope that I'll still have when I reach that age. And it's just, it's truly incredible and it's very, it's inspiring. So it was a great chance to speak with Peter again. And I think there are lots of good lessons there for the listeners. Yeah, I think that elasticity is funny. I think in life, uh, as we get older, we get more rigid, more set in our ways. But when you're trading and you're in markets, you do get more elastic. You do because the range of things that you've seen and the range of things that you've had to react to and respond to broadens over time naturally. So yeah, it's a funny it's a funny way to be, but you, you definitely, as you stay at the longer you stay in markets, you you do get that flexibility. And you know, I remember you coming back from from seeing Peter, and and everybody at uh, at Real Vision that's had anything to do with him, just you know, they, they all either want him to adopt that, well, Peter to adopt them, or or, or be a, you know some kind of surrogate grandparent. He's he's just the nicest <laughs> guy in the world, and just so happy to share those forty years of wisdom. So you know, we're very very fortunate that he he would do that for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one thing that that um, that I think about when I listen to Peter about implementing you know different ways of object of, of objectively assessing your trading and, and looking at different metrics than what people normally look at be it VAR or or you know win ratio or your rate of return there is a bit of a barrier because you have to be so meticulous and thorough in terms of assessing your own trading um, where that might be a bit of a barrier for people who are just kind of in this recreationally or haven't made that full commitment so what do you think about you know people who are kind of on the fence about you know, implementing something that's really systematized and thorough, uh, but haven't, I guess, taken that step and made that commitment yet. Well, there's, look, I think discipline is one of the most important parts in, in anybody's trading strategy. You, know, you have to be disciplined. If you don't have discipline, you don't have a chance. And, um, you know, we'll talk more about this in weeks coming up when we, when we, when we tackle the mental approach of trading. But, you know, at some level, you have to have a disciplined framework and you have to have the ability to stick to it. And I think Peter's uh, very good at getting that across and the importance of it. Absolutely. Well, Grant, this brings us to the end of our episode. But before we do, just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Yes, indeed. One week I want to get you to say that like the T's and the C's guys at the end of the commercials, really fast and really low, just as if you can ah, James it. can speed me up. Yeah, that's true. Next week, we'll be back as usual with our long short segment and things I got wrong. And our feature segment next week is going to deal with trading psychology. That's right, Grant. Really excited for next week's feature because we're going to dive into the inner game of trading. And we've talked a lot about big themes, but here we're going to bring it right down to the trader and figure out what are some of the best practices and mistakes that people can avoid. In the meantime, if you have an interesting question about this week's show or anything else for that matter, we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review on review, iTunes. Review, people, review. Yes. We don't know what it means. All the reviews. But, hey, you just have to do it. Uh, to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, please do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. 
You can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And if you so desire, you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you should definitely follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We'll see you next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com